This podcast is brought to you by Belong, winner of Money Magazine's Best Value NBN plan for the second year running. Welcome to Property Unpacked, the podcast that unpacks the hot topics of property and explores how they affect you. I'm Alice Stoltz. In this episode, we reveal the common mistakes buyers make when purchasing a home. And then we dive into what's happening with millennials when it comes to property. Is it as tough for this generation as they claim? And what can they do to help get a leg up into the property market? And no, before you ask, it's not about avoiding smashed avocado. The stress of buying a property can mean we slip up and make mistakes we wish we didn't and hurt the hip pocket in the long term. Everyone you know gives a little nugget of advice, their do's and don'ts, and then before you know it, the market feels like it moved at a rapid pace yet again. To share her expertise on what not to do when buying and shed some light on common mistakes, buyer's advocate and qualified property investor Kate Bakos joins us. Kate, welcome back to Property Unpacked. Oh, it's wonderful to be back on the show, Alice. Thank you for inviting me. Now, Kate, hasn't the market changed a lot? I think we spoke to you in the depths of COVID last year and we're in what was probably best defined as a cold market or a market that was on pause. And now we're in a market where there's sort of heat and steam coming out of every state and territory in the country. It's such a different market. You've uh, nailed it. It's it's very difficult for people to pivot this quickly anyway. And there are so many hallmarks of a seller's market and a buyer's market that we've experienced such a tight turnaround. It would be very hard for inexperienced buyers to get their heads around how the rules have changed. Mm. And I think that's right. It's that sort of element of feeling a bit a, a bit like whiplash, isn't it? Like it's just happened so quickly. I think in past hot markets, it's sort of built, 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 and you can sort of see it coming and it's like, okay, another few weeks and we'll be there. But this has happened so rapidly that I think particularly for a lot of first-time buyers, it must just be kind of dizzying for them to, to navigate it. So what we're hoping today is that you can give us some of your sage counsel of, of how best to, to not make terrible mistakes. Now, Kate, are there just obvious mistakes that buyers can make in the market where it is at, at the moment? Yes, there are. There's quite a few that are consistent with a hot market as well. And I'm hoping that I not only shed light on that, but provide a few tips and tricks and hacks for people. So the first one that we're seeing a lot is buyers are looking at the quoted price range and they're using that as their guide and they're targeting properties that if they're not doing the homework correctly, they might be targeting properties that aren't even in their budget. So unfortunately, guide prices aren't necessarily perfect indications of of final sale prices. And I think every buyer needs to understand how their state's legislation works in relation to how price guides are given and, and what underpins them. The best advice I've got for buyers is to have a look at what's selling, have a look at what's sold, go through the auction results each weekend. If, if you're serious about buying a property, you need to be prepared to do some research and you don't need to be a buyer's agent or a valuer to get a really good glean on what a property's likely selling price is because you can look at what we call recent comparable sales. And I think the trick is looking at very recent sales and understanding what really is comparable. 
And I think when you can layer that information with other colour, like you go to the auction and there's 10 bidders there, you know, and then you can also, this is sounding like the complete nerd in me, but I, I always really believe that you should have what the price guide was on a property, what the agent says or what the listing may say, depending on which state one is in. And then what happened at the auction, number of bidders potentially or how crazy it went. And then what it actually sold for, as you just said, and then to really just pour over that week to week. And then you can start to see trends and patterns emerge. I think you would make such a good analyst, Alice. (laughs) That's really (laughs) insightful because sometimes for us, we have to look through the auction results or, or maybe the recent comparable sales when we're appraising a property. And if a property price tag looks too surprisingly low or, or surprisingly high, I have to be prepared to be on the front foot and give the agent a call and say to them, hey, with this auction, you know, three weeks ago, four weeks ago, what happened? And if it was a, a disappointing price, it might be that access to the property was really difficult or the agent just had a lot of bad luck leading up to the auction. They lost their three top buyers. And if it was a really heated result, they might say, yeah, there were 15 bidders or we, we had a, a parent bidding really hard because they wanted their kids to live next door or you know, anything can be possible. And you've just got to understand which ones are anomaly results, which ones are a reflection of a heated market. And then what are the reasons for disappointing results? Mm. Okay. Everybody is now going to really pour over the auction results. And I, I completely agree with that <laughs> one, Kate. What else? Looking at a property that seems too good to be true and getting excited about it without exploring what could be making it too good to be true. And sometimes it's reasons like zoning. If the property is in a zone that a residential loan product doesn't cover, let's say it's a commercially zoned apartment. So it's a really cool two-bedroom apartment above a shop and it's got commercial zoning. If that buyer is not certain that that they can get their loan across the line for that particular dwelling, they really need to proceed with caution. If they can't have a finance clause, they've got to really think about it because sometimes property bargains out there in a heated market are a bargain for a reason and if it's an unforgivable reason, you don't want to lose your 10%. That's a really scary thought. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that step of due diligence might seem very boring and the least fun and sexy part of the process, but it's absolutely crucial so you don't end up in a financial size crater. Yeah. What else, Kate? I think people who choose to avoid auctions are letting themselves down, especially in our auction capitals. We know that Melbourne and Sydney have lots of auctions, but these days we're getting auctions in all of our cities and even our regions are embracing auctions because there's enough competition there to create a good auction. But an auction doesn't necessarily spell devastation. In fact, you've got an opportunity to be bidding in a a very open and, and pretty honest way. So it's transparent. You're standing in a crowd, you can see who your competition is and you've got an opportunity to beat them by $500 if you choose to. It's not a closed tender bid with lots of mystery around it and you're not risking overpaying by $50,000. you are fighting it out at auction and you've got a limit in your own mind and you're in control. And I see too many buyers, especially younger buyers, avoiding auction and they, they say to me, oh, but auctions go mad. Auctions don't always go mad and if they're looking at the quoted range and the auction result flies past that, it doesn't mean that the property value flew past it. It means that the agent's quote range didn't correlate with the final price and often I find that auctions land exactly where I expected them to land. Because of the transparency, you're not risking having a buyer throwing out a FOMO-fueled offer that blows everyone else away. 
Yeah. Is there anything else, Kate, that you come across often in terms of the generalist mistakes that, that us, us yeah. mere mortals make? <laughs> yes. Trying to force the agent's hand to put in an offer prior to auction. And sometimes pre-auction offers can be great. Other times they can unravel a lot of good things and create a bigger issue than you thought you were facing. So, for example, if the property can't be sold prior, sometimes there's legal reasons. It could be a mortgagee sale. It could be a court order. It could be a probate situation where you've got siblings who are choosing to take it to to public auction. There are a few reasons why they can't go prior. And then there are moral reasons why people really don't want to sell them prior. And it might be for transparency between beneficiaries If someone is trying to push their offer and and get the agent to facilitate a sale prior and the agent's determined not to do so, all they're doing is showing their cards and alienating an agent. And we can shrug our shoulders and say, well, does that really matter? But if you miss it and that agent's the dominant listing agent in your chosen area, you'll regret upsetting them. Kate, if a buyer makes a mistake, what should their next step be? Good question. And it comes down to whether it's a moral mistake or a social mistake or a financial mistake. Now, if if they've made a financial mistake and there's an opportunity to get out of the contract that they are remorseful about getting themselves into, they're going to go straight to their solicitor and explain what they want to achieve and see if there's an opportunity to get out of it. If it's too late or if you bought unconditionally, that might be one of the toughest commercial lessons you've experienced. Now, if, you, if you've made a mistake that relates to agitating agents, then you've got to try and work out how you can fix that. And making friends with agents is is not everyone's bag. But if you're out there in the market and you're, you're wanting agent support, you really do need to remember that they are the conduit between, you know, you and the vendor. So being prepared to pick an agent that you're comfortable with or find a couple in your neighbourhood that are from different agencies that you're comfortable chatting to and have a little bit of an honest conversation about what you're trying to achieve. So if you've created bad blood or a, or a bad um, relationship there, you've just got to think about how you can reverse that. And agents are very human too and an apology or a, a friendly catch-up can go a long way. So when, when people talk about mistakes, they're, they're some of the, the typical mistakes. If a buyer's made a pricing mistake, they'll probably recognise that at auction and it will be more forgivable because they'll find that the property either sales past their budget or it comes in well below and they'll realise that they got their pricing wrong. But if they make a mistake with a closed tender bid or a a silent style, um, put your best and highest bid in, well, that that can be pretty tough. And after your cooling off period has expired, you probably don't have an opportunity to get out of it. Yes. Yeah, right. Okay. That's your magic number. Kate, I think also with property, people do need to remember of the medium long-term nature of the investment. And I think that what might feel like a mistake at the time in a few years can often evolve to your favour. And not always, I will of course add, but I do think that people feel like I overpaid for that. Um, and you look at the growth we have seen, particularly in Australia and in, in, in the major capital cities, it's quite extraordinary, the results that we have seen. So I think people should also be kind of themselves and realise this is not going to go up 30% overnight in a, in a moderate market. We do have to remember that. And I'm never cavalier about overpaying. I think everyone has to understand their own risk profile and know how they'll sleep at night. When we're buying a home though, too many people get rattled at the idea of slight overpayment for a home. But if it's for your long term and you love it, 
you're not selling it, so you're not crystallizing any losses. You've got to remind yourself of that. And property over the long term is actually quite a forgiving asset class. And I'm, I'm an advisor. People might be surprised hearing me say that. But I've seen properties that aren't all that fantastic still grow over time. Kate, do sellers make mistakes too? Or is it only really buyers who kind of end up in these sticky situations? Oh, poor sellers. There are plenty of sellers that can talk about their mistakes. And, you know, t- trying to time a market, whether you're a buyer or a seller, is a really precarious practice because the best of us can't time markets. We can only say when we, we feel that we might be at the highest point or the lowest point. And when you're in the, in the trenches or in, in the coalface, you can get a little bit of a glean, but none of us can really time it. So you see a lot of vendors out there trying to time markets. And if you're looking at at data and not understanding data lag, and if you're not talking to someone who is at the coalface or in the trenches, you might be finding that it's a knee-jerk reaction and you're already looking at yesterday's news. So the, the first thing that I'd say a lot of sellers get wrong is trying to time the market. The other thing is not listening to objective advice about presentation. Too many sellers are really attached to their own home. It's their castle. You know, some I remember years ago as a, as a listing agent suggesting to someone that they're fresh in the smell of their house and I was trying really diplomatically to, to say your dog, your dog really smells and your house smells of dog and it didn't go down well. But if someone's prepared to be objective and pragmatic and just take really good advice from someone who is stepping into their house for the first time and, and giving the advice that, that they've been trained to give to get the maximised sale price, well, then you have to listen to that. If decluttering is the order of the day or freshening furniture with higher furniture, you can't get precious and start thinking about how much you loved your 90s Bali-style teak and um, timber. You've actually got to let them do what they're doing. Mm. Yeah, that's really sage advice, Kate. And But gosh, it's a tricky process, isn't it, though? Kate, just before we let you go, how else can buyers navigate this current market? And is this just going to go on until the end of time now? Like, what are you feeling is in store for the months ahead? Yeah, I wish I had this wrong, but I feel like we're in for a really tough 2021 for buyers, buyers, agents, anyone on the buying side. We're facing tough market conditions because we are in a seller's market. So the sellers have the power at the moment. And the reason I say that is we've got a trifecta of things that are really fueling it. First and obvious one is low interest rates and they're ridiculously low. So borrowing capacities have gone through the roof. The next one that we're facing is consumer sentiment. And we've got really heightened positive sentiment, um, particularly having navigated COVID. And then the last one is such a stark uh, differential between supply and demand. And I'm not seeing any of those forces really changing very much. We've got our RBA governor saying that we won't see rates increase in the short term. And unless we've got macroprudential changes to our lending, so they might introduce caps or do what the Kiwis have done, unless that changes, and we all know that things don't generally change quickly when it comes to policy, I think 2021 is going to be tough. So buyers need to get their finance approval in place, be prepared to face auctions and put on their big girl pants and also make sure that they're very organised and targeted with what they're inspecting. So it's no good looking at properties that are advertised in your price range and then lamenting when they sell 100 grand over. You've actually got to look at the types of properties that are selling in your price range and land on a dwelling type and a couple of areas where you know that what you're looking for is abundant 
And that's when you're both successful because if you're spending three months looking for property in a market that's doing a couple of percent per month, you're losing value before you're even buying something. Mm. Kate, that's so true and you've given us a lot to mull over and gnaw over in the months to come. So thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Alice. Poor millennials cop a bit of flack. Whether that be due to their love of avocado on toast, the need to find themselves on a gap here, or the fact they're still living with their mum and dad in their late 20s or early 30s. In a property sense, though, since the 80s, the start of the millennial generation, mortgages have increased in value twice as much as incomes have, and homes have skyrocketed in prices with interest rates lower than ever. But by far, the most difficult part for this group appears to be physically getting enough cash squirreled away to convince the bank they're ready to buy. To unpack the issues millennials face and their property journeys to date, buyer's advocate and co-host of the Millennial Property Podcast, Emily Wallace, is with us. Emily, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to unpack some of this with you today. Now, Emily, it's just such a vexed question, isn't it? But why do you think it feels so hard to get into the property market for the millennial generation? Well, I think it's very evident, isn't it, across the market at the moment right now that prices just continue to climb and people are feeling it's really out of reach for them. There's lots of different reasons why, you know, millennials may struggle to save as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that's probably a, a quite a big conversation in, in where they spend their money. But certainly on a surface level in the real estate market, the increase in prices and what you can actually buy is a big barrier. Mm. Well, let's just tackle that elephant in the room about the saving issue. What do you think is going on there with millennials and saving? Well, speaking from a millennial myself, (laughs) I think we have come into an age where it certainly, there is a lot of pressure, you know, I think there's a lot of pressure for people to um, keep up with everything. And like you mentioned, you know, avo on toast and going out for brunch and that way of life, I think that um, the rising living costs, the the rising expense of keeping up with everything, Mm. um, whilst also, you know, we haven't seen a drastic increase in salaries. Mm. They're not increasing at the same rate that the pricing of housing is. So, we are struggling to put enough of our paycheck aside to have a sizable deposit to buy a reasonable home. I suppose the counter to that would be the government have unleashed a plethora of um, incentives and grants, etc. Is that helping in any way, do you think, for the millennial generation? It depends on what part of the market they're looking at. I guess, yes, the government have been great and I have to, you know, applaud them for their efforts in helping. But, um, you know, I see firsthand a lot of first home buyers to actually reside where they would like to, particularly in, in inner cities, they need more than what the grants are actually covering, particularly when, it, you know, those thresholds are around the $750,000 mark. Unfortunately, that doesn't buy you much anymore. So, mm. they are great, but they don't actually cater for everybody who's in the market. Mm. Now, Emily, what would be the first piece of advice you would give your 18-year-old self knowing what you now know about property? If you could rewind time, what would you what would you do differently? Uh, I certainly would have been more diligent in my, my savings when I first got my very first job at the ripe old age of 14 and nine, nine months. months. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's for sure. Um, and look, for me personally, I'm, I'm a rent vester. So, the mm. advice I would have given to myself is um, to stick on that path, but to do it sooner. I bought my first property at 23. If I'd been more diligent, probably could have done that, you know, at 2021 20, and accumulated a little bit more, but that's all hindsight. So, I think um, 
generally speaking, to act sooner and, and not to be waiting because all that's historically now happened is everything just keeps going mm. up. Talk about um, rent vesting, Emily. How has that experience been for you? Because I think that is a really good option for what could, be, for a lot of people, what they could do to enter the property market. Definitely. So rent vesting for me has definitely been a lifestyle choice. So um, just for reference, I guess, um, I know there's listeners all across Australia, but I'm talking about Melbourne here. So I bought my investment property at 23. I'm about to go forward for my second one at the age of 27. Um, and my lifestyle is renting where I want to live, which is um, in Elwood down by the beach. Now, the apartment I literally just moved into um, last week, brand new apartment, I would not say would be a smart choice for me to purchase um, with the mortgage repayments. You know, it's an over a million dollar apartment um, and I would rather diversify and have multiple options in the market in different markets um, in the rent vesting strategy. And a lot of millennials are considering that path um, or, and this is a really common trend I'm noticing at the moment, some of them are taking advantage of the first home buyer grants and um, thresholds, living in that property for you know a period of time, but ultimately it is an investment property and then they'll flip into a rent vesta. Emily, do you think um, COVID has set millennials back a lot when it comes to their property journey? It's an interesting one. I have a, a yes and a no answer to that, I must say. So yes, in the respect that the property market has taken off so drastically, um, more than we could have ever expected and, and millennials are feeling oh, I should have bought this time last year, you know. So, um, yes, in that respect, but no, in the respect that, you know, the savings have been a lot more achievable. I've, you know, personally had clients come to me and say, look, we were going to go overseas and get married last year, but obviously that got called off. Um, we're now just going to have a really small gathering and the 50K we would have put towards the wedding is now part of our deposit. So, um, that's an advantage, I guess, and, and certainly not a setback. So, it is I guess a twofold answer there, but um, I would say it certainly changed the direction of where they were going, whether that be for better or for worse, but certainly the setback would really be on the pricing of properties and, and how drastically they've increased. Mm. I think in a positive though, COVID has bought them some time to really reflect on how they would like to live their lives though. And I think we do see millennials who seem really clear in what they want when it comes to purchasing property, which I think is a really beneficial attribute because I think a lot of people do just rush into buying property without thinking enough about it. So I think it's really encouraging from that perspective. Now, are there any advantages for millennials when it comes to buying property at the moment? We've touched on, you know, first home buy grant and that sort of thing. Is there anything else that we can take as a really positive situation to what we're seeing at the moment when it comes to millennials purchasing? Look, I think in terms of millennials purchasing at the moment, a lot of the benefit that I foresee is because we are in an inclining market, if you are considering a purchase, is the ability to have good decision-making skills and acting fast is a positive because mm. if you can get in at today's prices, you know, the next week's sales results are very much based on the previous week's success. So, I think the positive is that if you're in a position to act, to be able to act and, you know, there's always a question of, oh, should I wait? I know we get a lot of people right into my millennial property and they say like, you know, what, what would your advice be? Should we wait? Should we not? I actually think those are rewarded are those who act when they can and within their means obviously. But yes, I think the reality is 
it is continuing to incline. So if you can get in at this level, you'll reflect back and go, gosh, I'm glad I got in when I did. Mm. And do you think buying is still everything? We know that the Great Australian Dream has always been home ownership. Do you think that is still the case and will that sort of evolve for future generations? Look, I think the notion of home ownership would change to property ownership and obviously that encapsulates rent vesting. I don't think that we feel as pressured to own our own home anymore. That's certainly a theme that I discover in interacting with multiple millennials in the property market. I would say, yeah, it's more so a focus of asset ownership, even beyond just property, having assets that grow in value and help create wealth. I do think there's a slight phasing out, particularly, I must say, there's a big difference I notice in attitudes between like a smaller country town versus a big city in in that Mm. respect, a bit more traditional values in, in those settings. But more broadly speaking, I would say that property ownership, asset ownership is kind of overruling the basics of home ownership. Emily, just finally, we're hearing a lot of chatter about stamp duty reforms, particularly in New South Wales, and, you know, it's always on the cards in Victoria of will they or won't they sort of change the the taxing around that. Do you think that will have an impact on how millennials approach property? Look, I think anything that can be a reduced cost, any extra factors, whether that be stamp duty that's payable or any buying cost associated with getting a property, anything that can be minimised, of course, I think it's going to put a very positive nature into the market. There's been a long time a call for reform on stamp duty. That's you know very evident. I certainly welcome it. But yeah, I think it will have an impact. And even we've seen, you know, with the slight reduction with the 25% and 50% off up until June 30 here in Victoria, that has actually made an impact. You know, people Mm. are going beyond where they could before. So, yes, it will have an impact, but we'll have to wait and see how quickly the government actually acts on that. Mm. Emily, that was so interesting talking with you. Thank you so much for your perspective today. No worries. Thanks for having me. This podcast is brought to you by Belong winner of Money Magazine's Best Value NBN Plan for the second year running. You've been listening to Property Unpacked, a podcast by Domain. If you like what you've heard, hit subscribe and have new episodes delivered to you as soon as they drop. Our executive producer is Adrian Lowe with production by Hayley Cools and editing and mixing by Dan McHugh. For more property news, advice and market insights, head to domain.com.au or download the Domain app. Thanks for listening. Chat to you soon.